On the show today, I'll be joined by legendary actress Zoe Wanamaker. She starred in My Family, she's been in episodes of Poirot, and even in the first Harry Potter movie. And we'll talk about all that and some of her more recent stage work. So, stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Benjamin May McKay's Talk To Me. I'm your host, Benjamin, and as I said, joining me on the show today is Zoe Wanamaker. And in addition to Harry Potter, my family and Poirot will also talk about Mr. Selfridge. So there's a whole lot of very exciting content coming up. And then after that interview, I'll also have the latest movie reviews and some DVD reviews, thanks to Roadshow and Mad Men Entertainment. But now, here's my chat with Zoe Wanamaker. Enjoy. Well, welcome to the show and thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Well, thank you for, for doing this for us. Well, you've performed in, in so many fantastic productions. So at what point in your life did you know that you wanted to pursue acting as a career? Um, I think uh, when I was quite young, but I was, being, I was constantly put off by my parents, um, who are both actors and knew the hazards of joining the trade um, and were frightened that I well that I think like any parent is they're trying trying to protect their child um, from disappointments and rejection I think rejection is uh, what most freelance people have to deal with and some people can deal with it better than others mm, gotta have a thick skin in this industry I'm afraid so, and I don't have one, so I think that's probably why they uh, were nervous for me. Mm. So uh, I was, I think, um, I think from a very early age, I had a, a romantic view of what acting was and the theatre, and uh, um, I th- think that they felt it was unrealistic, which it probably was. <laughs> um, um, so I. Deflected. I went to art school for a year, uh, trying to be a painter, and that didn't really. I didn't like working alone. That's one thing. And um, so then I went to secretarial college, so I could always pay for my myself. Um, and then I went to drama school for three years. So from that moment on, can you talk us through the rest of your career journey? <laughs> Uh, okay. Um, at that time, we had a wonderful repertory theatre system, which I left drama school in 1970. That's a long time ago. So what I decided to do was, after drama school, the, the one thing you can learn voice, uh, you can ver- learn fencing, dancing, tumbling, speech making, singing, but you can't learn. Then it comes to doing it and I think you learn more by the doing and I was lucky enough to go from one repertory theatre to another uh, just doing good parts and um, enjoying working on the stage and working with scripts new scripts that I'd never done before and directors I'd never met before um, living in digs as they're called and just learning I don't think I I think for the, f- I think I did one television a year, and and then I went, 
I think for about six years I was in rep and then I joined the Royal Shakespeare Company and was worked for them on and off for approximately 12 years with that and the National Theatre and then um, sort of went on from there. Uh, it's, it was the great joy with the rep doing all sorts of uh, different things and learning, learning craft, learning stage technique and and also learning um, about the actual world that actors live in. Mm. You must have learned some great techniques and had some fantastic experiences doing that kind of thing. I think I learned a lot. I learned I learned that um, I learned how to negotiate a script. I learned how to put on my own wig. I learned how to. Um, it's it's. Uh, it's it's working with in difficult situations and it's working with an audience. I think that's what one learns and with one's fellow actors. It's all it's all it, it's all comes much more together when you're in front of an audience night after night and learning how to uh, how to listen to an audience as well as each other as well as other act one's other actor mm, mm. so was there one project or experience you saw as a turning point for your career uh, i can't think uh, i think when uh, joining the royal shakespeare company was the first one um I felt I was working with grown-ups <laughs> um, and working with very highly trained directors and experienced, uh, far more experienced actors than myself. I think that was, um, and that must have been 1970, 1976, I suppose, from there on in. I started feeling that I was beginning to uh, let me think. Just feeling that I was in in a company, a very strong company. One, uh, particularly with the Royal Shakespeare Company, not only doing Shakespeare but re mainly doing um, other plays. Uh, um, plays that I would have done in rep, but not to such a high standard mm, the quality of the productions yes absolutely well fantastic now as you've said you've performed on stage and on screen which do you find more challenging i don't find them i find them both very challenging um i find television or film particularly challenging because it's a different rhythm there is a, a very little time uh, to get to know your fellow actors, to get to know your script, and to get to know your director. And that is, it's usually very, the turnover is very fast. And so you, you mentally have to speed up. Um, and also you have to get up early in the morning, which I don't enjoy. <laughs> and you don't get an organic time, as I call it, which is usually a rehearsal period where you get two or three weeks to rehearse, perhaps sometimes the luxury of more. 
and then you slowly put it all together. In film and television, it's a much speedier situ uh, um, situation. And you have to also do a lot of homework and mainly do a lot of, of decisions off offset, which I don't enjoy. Mm, it's got to I make it a lot harder. It to be a collaborative thing. Mm. So what would you say is the most difficult role you've ever played? Well, just recently I played um, um, a woman by the name of Stevie Smith, who was an incredible poet. Uh, and uh, there was a play that was written by Hugh Whitemore, which I've just finished at Hampstead, which I did last year at Chichester. And that was the most, um, to date, the most difficult um, in the sense that uh, uh, she was a real person and also it was a, it is a play that is mixed with poetry and storytelling. It's a sort of monologue, really, but with... Um, it's a, yes, it was, it was extremely difficult. Scrub that last bit. It's, it was a, very difficult to learn. Um, and if you ever get to read the play, which you probably won't, it's, it's quite... It has a genre of its own. And so that was um, a long battle to just learn it all and to get beneath the person who I was um, interpreting to Stevie Smith herself, who lived with her aunt all her life in Palm, a place called Palmer's Green. Um, and then I finished that in April, and then I went and did uh, eight performances of a musical called Zorba, which I did in New York. I've just got back from there. So those were pretty challenging. And a very different sudden change of pace, I assume. Totally. It was probably one of the most frightening things I've ever done. So how do you prepare for the roles you take on? Well, it varies. Um, exactly what they are, of course. Uh, it, I Usually if it's something, somebody like Stevie Smith, um, I did a lot of research and a lot of reading, uh, um, not only of her work, but also a biography that somebody had written about her and also I a lot of investigating about the era and the time in which she lived, which was between, but which was, she was born um, in 1902. So, and she died in 1970. So that's a long span of life. So, and also there's, a, there's that. And I usually listen to music uh, that is of that period. Um, and I look at, paintings and photographs that may be relevant. And that's usually the way I work. I usually go round it all the time just to, to collect as much information as I can. Um, and it's, that usually happens with everything I do, if, I, if it's feasible. Mm, putting but yourself in that place. The, Zorba the musical, I, I started reading the novel. And that made it much uh, more. Um, uh, that was made it slightly easier for me to get into the character. Mm. Having a backstory in a novel would help, I assume. Yes, it does. I mean, for the character was very much drawn from the novel, and and I hadn't really connected with it until I started reading the novel. Mm. So, what's been your favourite show to work on so far? That one. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Will that change as soon as you do a different project? Probably, yes. Yes, I think so. Uh, I, fall, I fall heavily involved with everything that I do. I, I sort of have to envelop myself in that world in order to make it um, live for me, anyway. Mm. Now, one of the most iconic films you've been in was Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. When you were filming that, did you have any idea that what you were making would turn out to be the start of a cultural phenomenon? No, I I didn't. But um, I read read the first book, and it was just up my street. Um, And I felt it was... When I was a kid, I used to read nothing but fairy stories, so they had a great relevance to me. I really enjoyed reading it, and so to be part of it was very exciting. Uh, I think I stopped reading them after book three, <laughs> but but I really loved loved working with it. It was it was a hoot. It was a gas, and I loved creating her, Madame Hooch, um, and I based her on an eagle. I thought that would be good. <laughs> mm, quite interesting, assigning a character to an animal. Clever. Mm. Well, yes, because she was the, the Quidditch creature, mm. and I felt in order to do that as a wizard, you had to be able to fly really well and have 360 degrees vision. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, another iconic show you've been involved in, uh, I suppose you're most well-known for, your role as Susan Harper in My Family. Now, you shot uh, over 100 episodes of that, and it ran for 11 years. Over that time, how did you shape and develop your character? Um, well, initially, she was supposed to be a tour guide. Uh, so I did a lot of research into tour guiding. <laughs> um, and um, which proved to be completely irrelevant. <laughs> um, I started to watch American sitcoms, which I'd not done for many a year. And then... Um, that was that was uh, uh, enlightening. But over the years, the script writers and the scripts, consequently the scripts, would change quite dramatically with uh, the new writing pool that happened. Uh, and that was um, a lesson and a learning curve in itself. I enjoyed um, the company of the other fellow actors and we became a family very much so and would laugh a lot so that was fun it would be now that was shot in front of a live studio audience what's it like filming tv in front of an audience well it's good if you know the lines very well (laughs) (laughs) and I, um, I have dyslexia, so it, for me it was more of a struggle to learn a line, to learn a script in five days. So it was always a bit of a, um, a nightmare and a, a slightly frightening experience. Um, and I don't like to show anything unless I'm ready. Uh, I'm quite shy like that. I have to be very sure of what I'm doing. And in many cases, I wasn't. So it was. <laughs> It was always a bit of a uh, helter-skelter. But I did enjoy it once I felt on top of the script. 
uh, Robert Lindsay loves being in front of the audience. He he drinks it. He he rubs it all over himself. He he just relishes it. I, I I'm a little bit more timid, and it took. I really admired his uh, his talent for that, and so therefore I just let him do it. So which was <laughs> because it's best to to leave let somebody do something that they're very good at alone. So, but that it was fun working with him and watching him and also with Chris Marshall, who I think was a great delight. And Daniela Denby-Ash, who was, um, had been acting since she was a kid. And that was, uh, each one gave, brought something, gave something to me. Um, and each one was, uh, was supportive. Uh, but sometimes I used to have lines written on the on a piece of on the back of the, the fridge or on a piece of paper. It's where, where the audience couldn't see. I was <laughs> because if you make a joke and it doesn't go well, um, if you if you screw it up, you have to go again in front of an audience, and it's not so funny the second time. No. And then it becomes boring, <laughs> and then the audience don't laugh. So you have to be really in control. And an audience doesn't like to see somebody who's not in control. Well, you made some great TV, and it is still repeated daily on Australian television. No. So, yep, daily, Monday to Friday, uh, sometimes on a Saturday night on uh, on ABC2. So it, it's really survived the test of time. Great. I'm pleased. That's wonderful. <laughs> no. As I said, it ran for 11 years. So do you think it's easier or harder to be involved in a long-running project as opposed to a one-off film or television appearance? Well, with my family, it was never a given. I mean, we made a series of, oh, I think there were 12 or 12 each in, in a row. And then I would go and do something in the theatre, uh, which was great. So I knew that I could... I was free after a certain time, but we never knew we were going to be recommissioned. So it was never a given, uh, if you see what I mean. So mm. I was able to go, for instance, I went off to New York to do a play at one point, um, and, I, uh, and, I, and then I went back to the National at one point, um, the National Theatre, that is, of Great Britain. And um, so those sort of opportunities, I never felt that I was trapped by it. Uh, so in that sense it was quite it was a good mix I had a good time doing both theatre and television mm, that would have been great because I know a lot of serial television actors talk about being stuck for many many years so it's great you had that freedom yes exactly mm. was there a particular me memorable moment from filming My Family you could share with our listeners um Oh gosh, there were there, there were many, as you know, because it was 120 episodes we did. I think 122. I think one episode I liked very much. There were two, actually. There was one we were stuck in a tube in the subway. I remember that one. That was really good. Yes, we were stuck in stuck in a in the tube, and that was very uh, slightly surreal, which I enjoyed. And also the other one was uh, in a high-tech apartment flat where we couldn't open doors and things like that and uh, and that that made me laugh an awful lot um we, d we did laugh <laughs> uh, um, many times i can't think of a specific moment oh, that's but right. there were so, so many hmm. i'm glad you enjoyed yourself making such a funny television program yes 
Now, another major show you were a part of was Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot. Now, you were actually in the last episode ever shot. What was the atmosphere like on set during those final days? Um, it was very mixed. I think much more for David, of course, for David Suchet, uh, because he'd done 20 years or 20-something 20, 20 years of this character, and for him that was quite emotional. And I've known David since 1978, and that's a long time. Uh, and one, I know him very well. So it was very emotional for him, but I think by that, this last episode, I think he'd, to a greater or lesser extent, he'd let go of the little man. Um, but I think it was very emotional for lots of people, I think, because it was it was a very, very... Um, uh, a very well-run machine and a lot of detail was put into it and a lot of care particularly with the script and particularly with with, with the scripts and the casting and and also the technical details of for instance the costumes and the the, the props and everything about it so that care and attention that had been given so much uh, weight to is hard to lose. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I was very sad to lose Ariadne Oliver as a character as well, because I think Agatha Christie had written some brilliant, brilliantly funny stories with her, um, and I was sad to let her go. Well, I mean, there is a short story just written for that character. If they offered you that, would you consider going back to it? Of course. But the great thing about, you know, I think Agatha wrote a few. There were, the ones I did were all Ariadne-led stories, all eight of them, I think. And I think there are some more. And I think, uh, as far as my research went, I think Agatha wrote it as a kind of antithesis of, of, of Poirot, who is anal and retentive and careful, whereas Ariadne was freewheeling and... And and instinctive, mm. and that was that was that's the great the the great double act uh, in a way. Ariadne on her own, I needs needs something. I, I I haven't gone into the all of them. I haven't reread them, so they're far. Of course, I'd love to do it again. I think she was she's a marvelous character, and it was also Agatha wrote it as a send up of herself. That is rather nice, yes. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, more recently, you've been working on Mr. Selfridge. What's the yeah. experience like filming a period drama? Well, again, that's it's wonderful, but at the same time, it's done much more episodically. Uh, so the storyline of um, Princess Marie... I felt from the research that I did was not nearly um, enough juice in it. <laughs> um, she actually existed. She was a real character, uh, and she was uh, quite an eccentric and, and strong. But I enjoyed what I do enjoy is researching the period and 
also finding researching a lot about Mr. Selfridge himself, who was quite an extraordinary uh, man um, and fascinating. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed doing that. Mm. It, it looks like a lot of fun, and it's just about to air on Australian television in the next couple of weeks. So I've got that to look oh, forward to. Oh right, okay. Oh good. No, she's she was a. Uh, Historically, she she defrauded people left, right, and centre. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, you've also performed in many, many stage plays, including iconic plays such as All My Sons. Mm. When a play is so well established in history, do you try and still bring something new to the role? Well, I can't think that you do. You just have to bring your own interpretation uh, you know it's like saying what was it like to play Hamlet when you've seen all the other Hamlets um, you just have to do it for yourself it's yours as you when it receives when you receive it through the post or on it becomes yours and therefore to think of other productions or Although sometimes when I've seen something, a wonderful production, it's very difficult to get that out of my head. Uh, but then you have to, you then have to just deal with it as, as with everything, as a new play and a new character. Mm, most certainly. Well, is there a stage play that you haven't performed yet that you'd still like to? No, I don't like... Um, I don't read plays. I go and see plays. So there's nothing that I've that comes to mind which, which I've said to me, oh, I would love to play that person, that character. Uh, I think if I do that, then I give myself a bad time. If so, nobody asks me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you're just open to reading or watching whatever comes your way then? That's right. That's it, right. It's a good way to be. It's got to be that way, otherwise you just feel disappointed and cross. <laughs> <laughs> now, you have performed on stage in both the West End and on Broadway. Are there any major differences you find playing for the different countries? Yes, huge. Um, Americans tend to... The English, I suppose, in a generalised way, they sit back and let it... And they say, OK, and fold their arms and say, OK, show me, tell me a story. The Americans lean forward and say, tell me a story. Can you, is that clear? Yeah, that's, it's, that's pretty clear. There's a, there's a kind of enthusiasm um, and an, um, a naivete in, it, in, in, in that energy that you get from an American audience, I find. Which do you uh, prefer? Which energy do you like the most as an actor? Um... They're both equally uh, appreciable, uh, appreciative. Uh, I think it's harder to please an English audience than it is an American. That's making a sweeping generalisation. But uh, I find that there's a great buzz. I'm, I'm talking particularly about New York because that's... I've only played in in Los Angeles once, so uh, uh, that was a different energy altogether. But New York particularly is a high energy of excitement and people really love going to the theatre and 
love seeing stuff and other actors in New York particularly are very generous to each other and support each other all the time. It's a very small town, uh, but it, it, so there is a great sense of camaraderie about it. London is so wide, so big, uh, there's not that feeling that you get, which I get in New York, of other people coming to see your shows and being very happy and very... Um, open about coming backstage to see you, whether they know you or not. Well, in this country, they're much more reserved about that. Mm. It's interesting to look at both both countries like that. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to America myself to see some shows at the end of the year, so I'll be curious to see what it's like having been to the West End a couple of years back. Oh, yes. You'll have a ball. I hope so. Well, yes, you will. You will, definitely. Now, you do always seem to be in work. What's your trick to staying so busy? <laughs> I don't know. I think I get very twitchy when I'm not working. Um, a lot of <coughs> my parents' fears, I suppose, leap up that uh, uh, that I'm, I'm, I don't exist if I don't work. Uh, I think also, you know, it's a, it becomes like most freelance people you worry about money <laughs> um, and where your next meal is going to be found from and your mortgage or your children or your whatever um, I like to keep busy I find it very difficult not to um, I don't know what relaxation means so I'd rather, I'd rather be focused. I feel I'm slightly at a loss when I'm not working. Mm. It's interesting because everyone who wanted to be an actor from a young age says that when they're not working, they feel like they're not alive. So I That's think right. it's, yeah, it, it's very, very true. Or well, it's not that the fact, the fact that they're not alive, that they feel that they have no purpose. Mm. They're missing something. They're missing something or they've been forgotten or they're not good enough, or there's a reason, yes, exactly, that the, the reason that they're not working is because they, that people think they're shit. <laughs> um, so that it is a self-aggrandizing situation and they're not comfortable with who they are. And it's being comfortable with who you are and, um, and believing in yourself as a human being, not just as, a, as an actor. Mm. The mind of an actor is very strange. Yes, tell me about it. <laughs> now, how do you think the acting industry has changed since you first started working in it? Um, gosh. Well, me talking to you has changed. I mean, that couldn't have happened when I first started. Um, uh, actors having to audition by Skype or um, self, um, self-taping, as they call it, um, that sort of thing has changed. Um, also, when I first started, you could not get an equity card unless you'd done 40 weeks of repertory theatre work. Um, you weren't paid the same if you were, unless you were a full member of equity. Um, and it was a certain degree, it was a closed shop. Now anybody can do it. Uh, 
so that has changed. I think for actors coming out of drama school, the the theatre work is uh, more varied and less available at the same time. Um, so that the training ground that I had, which was repertory theatre, no longer really exists. Uh, and so in order to get some understanding of working on stage, or indeed on film, is is more restricted. And therefore, the actor has to be able to juggle everything, much more so than they were earlier. Mm. So you talk about changes with auditions and I suppose the self-taping. Is that for better or for worse? Well, I don't like it. I don't find... I was never good at auditions anyway. And uh, I always thought it was an anathema to take something off a page and try and make it live in five minutes, you know, um, mm. without any careful study. Um, I personally think it sucks. <laughs> um, but it's that, that's me. I don't think any actor really likes doing it. I don't, uh, yeah, because yeah. I suppose you can criticise yourself and how many takes, you know, can you do because you, you want it yes. perfect. Yes, yes. And and you think, oh, God, I look so ugly and it all it goes blue as well. And you, or you see red all the way over the place and you, it's, it, it's, um, I find it embarrassing. Yeah, it, it's ridiculous. At least in a live audition, you, you get one shot and you make it good. Yes, and also you have a personal experience with, you get some rapport with the, the director or the casting director, something, you get something, but on a, it's, it's very cold and artificial, I feel. Mm, it is. So what current projects do you have lined up that our listeners can look forward to seeing you in? Um, well, Mr Selfridge is, as you say, is, is the one that's next. Um, I don't have anything at the moment, which is why I can speak to you now. Well, uh, I'm thankful for the fact you can speak to me now, but uh, I'm sure there's another project coming up for you very shortly. I, yeah, I look forward to it. Whatever. <laughs> so what do you think has been the best performance you've ever given? Oh, no. Benjamin, you can't ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've given some really shit hot ones, but I can't remember which one. I I think um, something very. I suppose Electra. I did a, a production, a Frank McGuinness adaptation of Electra, um, which was uh, very meaningful for me um, and. It was a pretty wonderful production in itself, directed by David Laveau. Uh, and it was exhilarating and exhausting at the same time. And I suppose that, for me, was um, a benchmark. But, I, you know, um, all my sons, I really enjoyed doing... Um, 
what else? All My Sons is a powerful play. I mean, I've been in the production here in Australia as Bert, and just watching the other actors, uh, it's it's such an emotional play. Yeah, yeah, and it creeps up on you. It does. <laughs> like Arthur Miller does, he's got that way. I, I think... Um, there are so many plays and characters that I've played. I've really enjoyed doing most of them. I would say 99% of them. That's good, because in this industry, you would not not want to enjoy a job. It's too tough. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It is tough. It's tough. And also, we're our worst critics as well, so... You know, I'm very critical uh, of myself, and uh, it's uh, it's hard for me to say that to answer your question like that because that sounds like a it sounds like I'm patting myself on the back. But I think when I feel I've done good work, um, you know, every night it's it's trying to what I call hovercraft, where you just where you are the character and the character is you and trying to make hit that every performance is you're never going to achieve it but if you achieve it once or twice it's you feel you've done your job you do you most certainly do yeah well finally what advice would you offer to anyone looking to work in the performing arts advice i would give is to find another job or interest that pays money <laughs> so you're not reliant on on this profession because it is so cruel and so um, ephemeral that if you can find something else that also gives you joy and fulfills you to a greater or lesser degree then use it utilize it develop it enjoy it because if you're con just reliant on this the work we do uh, or want to do it doesn't always happen no it does not that's that's my answer as far as, that, as, far as that's concerned it's it's so precarious that i hate for people to go into de depression if they don't get work and um, it's so easy in this job Mm, it's nice work if you can get it. Exactly. Well, thank you very much for your wise words and your time today. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Benjamin. That was my chat with Zoe Wanamaker. Now, I do have a release from Madman Entertainment to review this month. We've got Midsummer Murders Season 17, which has just come out on DVD. Now, I have always been a huge fan of the series, even after they replaced John Nettles uh, with Neil Dudgeon, and Neil Dudgeon continues to play uh, the, the new Barnaby very, very well. Uh, the new Detective Sergeant, uh, Charlie Nelson, played by William Lee, isn't quite as strong as some of our previous assistants like Troy or Ben. Uh, however, the actor still does a good job of working with some not-as-strong dialogue as some of the other characters get, um, but the four mysteries you get on here, they're all movie-length, as Midsummer Murders always are, and they are quite fantastic. We've got The Dagger Club, Murder by Magic, which is probably my favourite, and then there's The Ballad of Midsummer Country and Vintage Murder. 
And I do hope that Midsummer Murders returns for season 18. I do love the show. And you can pick up that release from Madman Entertainment at all good DVD retailers or on the website madman.com.au. And the link is in the show notes. I've also got to review from Roadshow, the Australian film Paper Planes. Now, while this did very well at the box office, which is great for Australian films, as I always love to see an Australian film do well. Uh, however, this film, you know, it, it's, I suppose... Predominantly a children's film. I mean, it's aimed at families as opposed to just children. Um, and it does have some nice themes of hope and, you know, family and love and all that typical kind of thing. But I just don't feel it does anything new or special with those themes. So while the story is, is you know, it's a bit unique, paper playing competition kind of thing, um, I didn't didn't love the film, but I was very happy to see an Australian film that's you know getting a proper DVD release and made some decent money at the box office. Uh, the acting, especially of the children, could waver a bit. I mean, child actors are never the safest bet for any movie, um, so th- th- this is no exception to that, unfortunately. But you know, it is children are going to love it. I'm sure there'll be some families that do, and I'm just happy to see an Australian film that's uh, you know as I said, on a proper DVD, making some, some money, uh, and, uh, you know, it had, did get an international release and did quite well. So, you know, it's something to be proud of, but not one of the greatest films that Australia has ever made. And now some cinematic releases. There's been quite a few since the last show earlier this month, and uh, let's start by having a look at Inside Out. Now, Inside Out is a very, very beautiful movie. It's Pixar's latest offering. And I do think it's it's fantastic. It's it has the right mix of comedy, heart, and reflection on the values of life. But I do warn you, it will make you cry. And I saw that uh, thanks to Disney, and I gave that one four and a half stars. Um, also, I checked out Minions. Now, I mean, it, it's a, it's been a long way to prequel to Despicable Me, and it does have its strong points, but it sometimes miss uh, it missed the mark. And I, I believe that's probably due to the fact that our main characters can't you know, speak proper English, and um, that certainly does have its its downfalls, unfortunately. I saw that thanks to Universal Entertainment. Also thanks to Universal, I checked out Jurassic World, and the gates of the park opened for the first time in 22 years, and it is a spectacle. Um, now, I mean, I enjoyed it more than the original, to be honest, and I gave that one four stars. It's doing very well at the box office, and I'm surprised if you haven't seen it by now. Most people seem to have. Now, the real standout movie, I think, the last couple of uh, weeks is Love and Mercy. It's a triumph of cinema. This movie is outstanding in every possible way. I couldn't help but love every single moment. It's the movie about Brian Wilson's life with Paul Dano uh, and John Cusack playing a young and old Brian Williams. And it shows his his depression, his illness, and how he was treated. And it's absolutely sublime. I saw that thanks to Icon Films, and I gave that one five stars. You can check out all the full reviews on the website preacherspodcast.net and go to the movie reviews section. I'll be back on the 1st of July uh, with another podcast. I'll be talking to Hugh Frey from Hercule Poirot, and he's also written a fantastic new novel, Harm, which will also be out on that date. So I look forward to seeing you then. Don't forget to check out all our sponsors and supporters, Madman Entertainment, Roadshow Entertainment, Palace, Nova Cinemas, and Mad Zombie Collectibles. I've been your host, Benjamin May McKay. I'll see you next time.